and a King who always is faithful to come and redeem, to always come and rescue your people. God, let us live in light of your love and truth. Let us live in light of your grace, mercy, and the example that you led in the way that we're to love one another. For your name we pray. It is good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Hope you had a great uh, celebration this weekend. Ate lots of hot dogs and hamburgers and shot off lots of explosive things. That's fun, right? And uh, so we hope you had a good time celebrating. Uh, man, what an amazing uh, blessing it is to live in a country that affords us the freedom to uh, to worship together and uh, and to have the liberties that we do have. Uh, I know that there are things that are changing in our country in some capacities in some ways, but and we're blessed beyond measure in what we have. And uh, especially this morning, just to say, uh, man, what a, what a blessing it is to have men and women who have laid down their lives to give us that right and who have served uh, with boldness and with passion and with skill and integrity and honor to give us the right to be free. And so uh, we just want to remember and celebrate and thank them this morning. And so if you have served in our nation's armed forces uh, we thank you. We celebrate the fact today that we are free because of, in part, your sacrifice. Uh, if you have family members and friends that are serving even now, uh, call them, email them, text them, let them know that you appreciate them because our freedoms are not something we should take for granted or take lightly. So uh, thank you so much uh, for that. We're glad you're here this morning. We are starting a new teaching series today uh, called You Asked For It. And the reason we're calling it that is because we have asked you as a church to write in questions to our staff and our elders and our leaders, and, and we wanted to kind of get a gauge and a feel for what are the things you're thinking about? What are the things that you're curious about? What are the, the questions you have about life, about God, about the Bible? Uh, and we want to attempt to answer those questions. Uh, we won't get to every question that we're asked. There were a lot that were submitted, but over the next several weeks, we're going to do our best to get to as many as possible. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, we're going to have a little bit of a different format over these next several weeks uh, that will help us to answer several questions. Um, when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, the Bible talks about the fact that there's orderliness in worship. And Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, talks about the fact that, uh, that in any given worship service, they might have two or three prophets or speakers who would get up and address the congregation from God's Word. And so we thought, man, what a cool way to, to really do. Most of the time in our American church services, it's just you get me. I'm sorry. That's all you got. And uh, you, whether you like it or not, this is who you get the voice of. And so um, for most of the time, you hear from me. Our elders speak. But we get one person on any given Sunday that gets up and speaks and teaches, and then we all go home, right? Uh, but we thought over these next several weeks, today excluded, uh, that we will take the opportunity to have multiple people who will come up either in a panel format or one at a time and address different questions. And so we'll try to tackle two or maybe at the most three questions on a given Sunday that we can take 10 or 15 minutes at a time and address some of those questions. So you'll hear from multiple prophets, if you will, uh, as the biblical terminology goes, that you would hear from different speakers or people that, uh, that will be teaching from God's Word and giving truth based on the questions that you've submitted. So that's the way we're going to kind of do things. Today we're going to take one question, and I'm going to take the question as it is and address that question, but I'm also going to put my own variation and spin on it to kind of guide us through the rest of these upcoming weeks. And here's why I want to do that, because in order to really answer questions from what we believe is a biblical foundation, you need to understand that the Bible is our source of truth. 
And if we're going to use the Bible to answer questions, then we need to at least have an understanding that this is God's Word and that when we go to it for answers, it should be able to give us truthful answers in the way that God has intended for life to be lived. And so today what I want to do is, is uh, ask the question that was posed to us, and then I'm going to put my spin on it, and at the end we're going to come back and actually address the specific question that was asked. And so here goes. Uh, the question was this, and I think it's cool, it's kind of fun, uh, but here's the question. Isn't it defiling God's Word to use New English Bibles, the KJV is the exception, but the NIV, the NASV, the New King James Version, the RSV, NRSV, LIV, all these other things, they've changed over 200 verses from the original King James Version for the English language, all right? And so today, uh, anybody here use the King James Version of the Bible like that's your preference by when you wouldn't care to raise your hand? Fantastic, good. Um, I know growing up, and I'll talk about this in a little while, growing up, the King James Version was one of the first Bibles that I had put in my hands, and so it's a familiar version to me. But a lot of people would say, and I've been around churches even, that would say, man, King James is the only translation of the Bible. Don't use anything other than the King James Version. And so when you get a question like this where you go, can we use other forms of the Bible New English language modern translations, or is it defiling God's word? I mean, the King James was written early on, 1611, translated into English. And so we're going to talk this morning a little bit about that. Um, but here's what I would say before we even get to addressing this specific question. The Bible was originally written in what languages? Two of them specifically. Hebrew and Greek, Old Testament and Hebrew primarily, and New Testament and Greek primarily, right? And so these are the languages that the, uh, the, new, or the, the Bible was originally written in. And we have translated these ancient texts into the English language. And we have to understand that when we do that, that there is no translation from one language to another that is exact, that's precise. There are no words in certain languages that convey exactly to what we speak in English. There are things that we say in English that if you go to another country and say the same word or phrases, they'll look at you like you're a crazy person. Uh, and so there are not exact translations that take place. But when we think about the original text, we have the Hebrew and we have the Greek. And what we attempt to do in our English language is to go back and get as close to the original Hebrew and Greek as humanly possible to let us know what the authors originally wrote and intended to say. And so with that in mind, uh, just kind of an illustration when I've traveled internationally, and I've had the, the blessing and the privilege to do that quite a bit, but uh, one of the places that we've traveled was Zambia, Africa. And uh, the missionary that we worked with there told a story one time about how difficult it is sometimes to translate. Because when I would speak at a church, uh, most of the people in Zambia did not speak English. They, these are people who live out in the country. They're not in the city. A lot of city people speak English, but a lot of people out in the, the bush or the country, they still speak their original languages. So I had to have an interpreter to speak for me. And I would say something, and the interpreter would say something. I would say something, and the interpreter would say something. And sometimes I would say something, and the interpreter would kind of look at me like, you say that again? And I would say it, and he'd go, hmm. And then he would think of a way to go, okay, this is what I need to communicate and express to my audience based on what you just said. Because he didn't have the exact form or word or phrase to use to communicate to his audience. I don't know if you know this or not. We say weird things in America. Um, there are just odd things that we say. And so one of the, the missionaries in Zambia told me this. He gave me an example. He said there was an American speaking at a church in Africa, and he commented on how full the worship service was. The church was, was full, and he stopped in the middle, or as he was getting ready to begin his sermon, he said, man, this place is so full, and he has an interpreter. This place is so full, if anyone else comes in, we're going to have to hang him on a nail, right? Because there's no seats, so you're going to have to hang him on the wall. That's how full the building was. Well, the Zambian interpreter 
didn't know how to communicate that, so here's what he said. Everyone watch the door. If anyone else comes in, we're going to grab him and hang him by the neck until he dies. A <laughs> little bit lost in translation there, right? And so when you think about these translations, do we have what was originally intended or do we have some mess-ups? Uh, one of my friends, one of my best friends that went to Zambia with us, um, she uh, was one of the funniest people I've ever met. Um, very Chris Farley type person. And she was a heavy set person and she could do Chris Farley. I mean, she was just hilarious. Um, but one of the phrases we use in English, when we think little kids are cute, what do we say? Oh, I could just eat you up. Right? Well, she said that to a kid. I could just eat you up. You guys are so beautiful. And this kid just got this horrified look on his face. And we found out later that in Zambia, that women there will tell their children, most of who have never seen a white person before, White women will eat kids. <laughs> now, you have to remember, Chris Farley, kind of big girl, she said when she found that out, she went, I don't know what I did. I, that kid was scared to death. He probably thought I already ate two or three. <laughs> and you just have this crazy lost in translation. We think I could just eat you up. It's cute. Look how cute and adorable you are. And they think she is literally going to put me in her stomach and digest me, Right. And so there's all these kind of lost in translation. So the question posed today is one that I'm going to address in these two ways. First, I'm going to put my own spin on this question to take the conversation just a little bit of a different direction. And then second, I'm going to answer the question directly. In order for us to use the Bible as our basis for answering questions, whether that's on marriage or on salvation or on government or on morality, whatever it is, we need to understand and believe that the reliable source of Scripture is true. And that we can take it at its word. That it is what God wrote and has uh, kept for us today to communicate his values, his truth. So the first question we need to ask is, how did we get the Bible? And is what we have the true word of God? And so that's the first way I'm going to take this. And so here, if you're taking notes on your, your um, outline today, just write this down. The first thing is that God holds his word in high regard. God holds his word in high regard. His word is valuable to him. It is precious to him. Psalm 138.2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and I give thanks to your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you, God, have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. He holds his word in high regard. And so part of God's priority in his sovereignty is to preserve His Word given to man through the centuries and the generations and the ages so that we continue to have the truth that God has revealed for us today in the 21st century just as they did in the ages B.C. and at the time of Christ in the 1st century. And so as we look at this, we want to just ask, how do we get the Bible and what do we do with it? God holds His Word in high regard. And so His divine intervention through the years has helped us preserve Scripture. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the preservation of Scripture has taken place and been passed down over the time. But we believe wholeheartedly that God is capable and has, in fact, preserved His Word for us to have today. And so when you think about that, the second question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is it true we don't have the original autographs or manuscripts? I mean, do we have the original writings? It is true that we do not. So you can write, yes, it is true. We do not have the original autographs. Do we have the piece of paper that Paul wrote on that says all of what Paul wrote? No, we don't have that. Do we have the original Paul's writing of Colossians? No, we don't have that. Do we have copies 
of Paul's original writing. No, we don't even have the first copies. We don't even have the copies of the first copies of what Paul wrote. Okay? And so for some of you, you're kind of going, oh, wait a minute. We don't have the originals? We don't even have copies? We don't have copies of copies? Are we sure that what we have is accurate, is reliable, is truthful? Because I know what copying is like. It gets messed up over time. And so maybe we have messed up versions of the Bible. So I would say this. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and it's active. That God's Word is living. It's alive. You can copy the words to a different page and it doesn't change the power of the words. Just because we don't have the originals, that we have the copies, that doesn't change the power of what God has intended to communicate to us and convey to us. We have copies of His Word, but they are still powerful and alive and living. They are alive and actively working to reveal who God is, and it shapes our lives for His will. How to shape our lives for His will. So here's the question. How are the Scriptures passed along and preserved? If we don't have the originals, we have copies of the copies. How does this all take place, and where do these come from? Well, when Paul would write, and you might see there's a diagram that we're going to put up on the, uh, the slide here for you to look at. The original writing by the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, Matthew, uh, whoever would write, you would have these original writings by the apostles, and they would get sent to the churches. So Corinth, Ephesus, uh, Colossae, uh, Thessalonica, all these churches would get the writings that Paul or Peter or whoever would write to them, uh, as Paul wrote to James or to Titus or Philemon. And so they would receive the, the original letter, like a letter. It would be sent by carrier through the mail, postal service, whatever they had in Greece. I don't know. Uh, and so you would get the letter, and it was the original autograph. Well, then the church would make a copy for themselves. They would rewrite what Paul or Peter had written to them, so they would have a copy. And then they would pass it along to other churches in their area. And then those churches would make a copy. So maybe you distribute your copy, and another church copies it three times and distributes that. And maybe the second church distributes and copies it five times, and they distribute that. And then the last church copies it and and distributes it ten times. So now we have all these copies that are floating around out there, right? And what they would have is scribes, typically professional scribes. This was their job to copy down the the words. Sometimes they would do it uh, this way. They would have somebody like myself who would be sitting out here, and you would all be scribes with your pen and paper right there. And I would be reading Paul's letters to you, and as I read a sentence, you would write the sentence. And then I would read another sentence, and you would write the next sentence. And so that would be how they would do it in mass, trying to get as many copies out as they could. Other times it would be one person sitting with a copy and doing it letter for letter, word for word, line for line. And so interestingly enough, uh, they didn't have Xerox machines, so they had to painstakingly go through this process of writing word for word, line for line, letter for letter. And honestly and truthfully, there were mistakes that were made along the way. And so some people out there would, would say and argue Well, that's what is wrong. There are thousands of mistakes that were made in these copies. And they're right. There were. Sometimes scribes would get tired, and their eyes would skip a line, and maybe they would write a line and then realize where they were. Sometimes they just misinterpreted. Sometimes a letter would change. And so it's true. We have variants in the copies of the copies. But here's what's amazing. We'll talk about this in a little while. We have so many documents to compare that we can find and literally trace back where the mistake was made and where it was corrected to get back to the original as close as we possibly can. And the vast majority of mistakes that were made, people want to say all the time, oh, there's so many mistakes in the Bible. You can't trust it. 
the vast majority, over 95% of the variants that we have found and discovered through textual criticism, the vast majority of these things are letter changes or words that are similar so they would change the word just a couple of letters switched. They're not doctrinal errors. They're not things that change what we believe about Scripture. They're spelling mistakes or they're minor changes. And so we have these copies that we can go back and trace and see. This person made a mistake here, but here's what was, what's there. And this one, compared to three others, they all say this. So this one we know is the one that made the mistake because here's four that are exactly alike, and here's one that has a mistake in it. We have so many documents that we can go back and look at, and I'll talk about the number of documents in a little while, that we can find where the mistakes were made and how to trust the original things that were there as they were copied through the generations. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to copy things before by hand because we have Xerox machines and printers and fax machines and all that kind of stuff, but it is difficult. Uh, I went through a period of time in my early ministry, uh, these journals, where I actually would do my quiet time and take uh, the books of the Bible and just rewrite them. And so I would try to take a chapter a day and just say, okay, I'm going to do Colossians 1. And I would write Colossians 1. Take a look at the thing, write it down. Take a look, write it down. Take a look, write it down. And it is painstaking. Uh, and it is not extraordinarily fun, but it does cause you to engage in the text in ways that I had never experienced before because I had to make sure I was looking at it intently. And I had things that were logged away in my mind that were so deep because I was engaging with it on such a personal and intimate level. Uh, but as it would go, um, this journal that I have here, I, I have uh, Philippians through um, Philemon that I copied, and so uh, I wanted to read you just one thing here that would kind of show you how this works. Uh, this is part of, the, of Philemon, and so I was copying it down. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And if you were to go back and look in your own Bibles in Colossians chapter 2 in the first 10 verses, you would find that. There's no mistakes that I made from copying that to that. But listen to this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And then I realized that is supposed to be deity because I am a terrible speller. But I wrote deity. I changed two letters around. That's a variant. That's a variance, right? That is a mistake that I made in copying. But if you read this, would you go, man, that changes everything I believe about Christ. Christ is not a deity. Christ was on a diet the whole time he was on earth. He's not the son of God. He's just a guy that was fat and needed to be on fruit and vegetables. No, you wouldn't read it that way, right? You would understand by the variance that I made a mistake. It's a simple mistake of flipping two letters to write something that because I don't spell well makes me look dumb. But does it change anything about the doctrine of Christ being the Son of God? No. It's a simple spelling mistake that I made along the way. And so when we see variants in Scripture, when we see these different things take place, when they would copy things, they would find these small errors that would take place. And so when we look at this, we've got all these copies. But here's what I would say to you. Having no original manuscripts is not only true of the Bible. A lot of people go, oh, we don't have the, the original manuscripts. Can we trust this? We don't have original manuscripts of anything from ancient antiquity. Here's what, what we kind of know. Let's take a look at some other ancient documents and then kind of make some of these comparisons. Um, Daryl Bach, who's a textual critic, at the, as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this. The only way people know of any ancient literature is by way of copies, not originals. And because we're dealing with writings that are so extremely old, you can imagine how few of these manuscripts are likely to have survived into modern times. They're ancient. They didn't survive. They were written on papyrus. Papyrus, after about 100 years, dissolves. It's like writing on a paper bag. 
and hoping it's going to be preserved for thousands of years. It doesn't happen. So the only way we have any knowledge of the ancient literature is through copies. So let's look at a few things. The works of the Roman historian Tacitus. Almost everything we believe we know about ancient Rome comes from Tacitus and his writings. Here's what Tacitus, here's what we have from him. He wrote early in the first century, which is around the same time of Jesus, and the first church, the early church. The manuscripts that we have of Tacitus, we have three on record, three of his copies of his original manuscript. The first earliest copy we have was written almost 800 years after he wrote his original. He wrote his original. We have no copies of anything then until 800 years later. Then we get a copy. Then we found another copy. Then we found another copy. Three copies of Tacitus. Almost everything we believe we know about ancient Rome comes from Tacitus. Nobody questions the reliability of these documents that he had copied that tell us about Rome that are 800 years after he wrote his originals, these copies. Nobody questions that. This is what we know about Rome. This is true. Uh, the earliest, uh, the Institutes of, of Gaius, written in the second century. Manuscripts, again, we have three. The earliest copy was 300 years after he originally wrote his documents. So we've got 300 years. Then the Jewish wars by Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian. So Josephus wrote again in the first century around the time of the early church. Manuscripts, big jump forward here. We go from having three with Josephus, we have 50. Wow, huge, right? Now we've got 50 copies. And it gets a little bit uh, crazier too because the earliest copy of that is 900 years after Josephus originally wrote. But nobody takes a look at Josephus' writings and says, I don't know if this is trustworthy, this is reliable. He's presenting history, he's writing this stuff, and we believe it, we can trust it. Fifty copies, 900 years after he originally wrote. So let's take this same thing and, and make this test with the Bible. The New Testament manuscripts that we have on file in the Bible, remember the most we have from Josephus is 50. How many New Testament manuscripts do you think we have? 5,800. 5,800 cataloged. There are more. We just haven't cataloged them yet. Uh, there is one place in the world that is receiving uh, or has um, up to 80 new finds a day that are coming in. They can't keep up with cataloging it with all these new finds of ancient literature that are from the Bible, that are written from the Bible. And so if you add the Latin manuscripts, we have over 8,000 more in catalog of the Latin manuscripts. 5,800 Greek 8,000 Latin. Here's the amazing thing about this. When we take a look at this, uh, this doesn't even count the vast number of citations from first century Christians who would do like I did and journal and write, and they wouldn't have their copy of the scroll in front, but they would write from memory what they knew of the Bible. And so those copies of those things, uh, it would be like a commentator writing and saying, here's what I think of what I taught my church, and here's the passage I used in writing it in. We have copies of that. Bart Ehrman, who is one of the textual critics who uh, staunchly opposes the Bible, Bart Ehrman actually says about all of these copies of just um, the first century citations. He says, we have so many first century citations from people who wrote in journals and in scrolls and those types of things. If you put them all together, we would be able to copy the entire New Testament just from their citations of the Bible. And he doesn't even believe in the authority of Scripture. And yet he affirms, from the first century, we could reproduce the entire Bible by the citations of people who wrote about it. The entire New Testament. So, again, one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, textual critic Daniel Wallace, said this about the Bible and what we have. When it comes to ancient manuscripts of the Bible, we have an embarrassment of riches. An embarrassment of riches. We have so much to look at. 
Do you remember how many years spanned the time or the writing of the earlier works of antiquity that we looked at? The earliest we had was 300 years after the original writing. Some of them were 800 and 900 years. The earliest copy of Scripture that we have is a piece of the Gospel of John dated from A.D. 125. Most people believe that the, that the New Testament in its entirety was finished by the year 100. Somewhere between 75 A.D. and 100 A.D. that the entire New Testament had been completed. And so John, the earliest copy we have is from 125. That means only, at the most, only 25 years after the New Testament was finished, we have copies. Tacitus, Josephus, 800 years, 900 years, 300 years. The Bible, John, 25 years from the original writing. We can go back so early from the copies and trace and see what did John write? Can we trust this? Here's a copy from 25 years later that matches the stuff that we have today. So we've got all these different things. Now for us at, at GFC, here's what I would say. We have a belief statement that guides our view of the Bible. And anyone who attends here or has joined our fellowship is part of our fellowship. You need to know where we stand on the authority of Scripture and how we handle teaching Scripture. And so here's our belief statement about Scripture in the Bible. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and is without error in the original manuscripts. The Bible is authoritative and is God's word to humanity, given through human agents to be believed and obeyed. And so when we teach Scripture and when we look at the Bible, this is how we do it. This is the lens through which we do That it's authoritative, that in the earliest manuscripts, in the original autographs, that they were without error, that they are inspired by God. And that all Scripture, First Timothy says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking correction so that the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped in all manner of godliness and righteousness. And so when we see this, okay, we start going, man, this is how we interpret questions. Now, all of that is almost background to just kind of go, can I trust the reliability of the Bible? And then the question that was really asked for today is this. Isn't it defiling God's Word to use new English Bibles? I mean, if we're supposed to look at the Greek and the Hebrew, we've got these new English Bibles, all this new stuff that's written in our language. It's not Hebrew. It's not Greek. It's translated. Can we trust this? The King James Version is the exception, and I'm assuming that this person who asked uh, either just loves the King James Version or believes that because it's the earliest version of English that it's the best. Uh, both ways are fine. Newer versions, this is the person writing again, newer versions have changed over 200 verses from the original King James. And so uh, I would want you to know at first, from the very first thing, that for those of you who have King James Bibles, read King James Bibles, I am not against the King James Version of the Bible. Um, in fact, I believe it is beautifully poetic. I believe it is a, a good translation. We're going to talk a little bit more about what type of translation it is in a few minutes. Um, but I would say this, that the, the King James Version was written in 1611. And when it was written in the modern language for their time, uh, but there had also been an earlier version of the, uh, the Bible that was written in English. William Tyndall had translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English uh, 85 years beforehand, 1526. So in 1526, the first version of the English Bible was used. Now, many of you have used the King James Version at some point in your life. I know I have. Um, the first Bible that I had was the King James Version. When I was uh, growing up, I grew up in the Baptist church, and we had an event every summer called Bible Drill. Any Bible drillers in the house? Thank you. I do not feel alone. All right, so here's what the deal was with Bible drill. Bible drill was a way that helped kids learn and identify with Scripture. We had to learn the books of the Bible. We had to learn passages from the Bible. We had to learn what books, you know, if a caller in a competition said Job, 
you had to be able to step out on a line and tell them the book before Job, Job, and the book after Job. That was how the deal worked, all right? Uh, if they said Matthew, you had to be able to say book before Matthew, Matthew, the book after Matthew. And so you would do that. Or they might call out a passage, 1 Timothy 3.16. What's it say? You had to step out on a line if you knew it, and you had to be able to quote that. If they called you out, you had to be able to say First uh, Timothy 3.16. <laughs> and just like go into panic crazy mode because that's how I operate. I don't do well under pressure and and so um, they would call on me, and I would just freak out, right? And so, uh, but that was Bible drill. Awesome way to help kids learn the Bible. Put them in pressure-packed situations and force them to do stuff in front of adults. It's awesome. Um, but we use the King James Version to memorize. So a lot of the texts I have memorized from my childhood are from the King James Version. Right, Phil? So we did Bible drill together. This is my brother, Phil. And so uh, we did Bible drill together. And I spent many afternoons crying and screaming because I hated it. I hated practicing for it. But now I have King James verses of the Bible memorized. And so uh, the King James Version is beautiful. But occasionally it's difficult to read because it was written in an old English translation for their time. And for us today, sometimes it's difficult to read because they have words that we don't use anymore in a lot of their translations. For children and teenagers especially, it can be difficult why do we say thee and thine and thou? Nobody speaks like that, right? And so you've got all these things. Uh, and so when we think about it, it's a great translation of the Bible. But for some people, uh, especially less mature believers who don't know how to grapple with the word, it's not the best translation for them to use because it's difficult to read on some levels. And so when we see this, we kind of go, okay, the King James Version um, is just like the ESV, the NASV, the NIV, etc., all these different kinds of things. The modern translations... When we take and say, okay, now I'm speaking, I usually primarily speak from the, the New International Version. They did not take the New International Version and say, okay, give me the King James and let's take the King James and translate it into the NIV. That's not how they interpreted that. They take anything, any version of the Scripture, goes back to the Greek and the Hebrew and says, what does the Hebrew say Now, how are we going to communicate that? What does the Greek say? How are we going to communicate that? So have there been verses that the King James Version of the Bible uses that the NIV or the NASV does not use or words that have changed. The person that asked the question said over 200 words have been changed. Yeah, that's true. But don't freak out about that. Here's why. When the King James Version was written in 1611, they used six documents to translate it from Hebrew and Greek into the English language. And the earliest manuscript that they had available to them at that time was from the 12th century. All right? So in 1611, they're writing with six documents. Now, since the publication of the original King James Version Bible in 1611, we've discovered 1,000 times as many Greek documents alone that they had available to them when they translated the King James Version. So you think about that. You think about what we have available to us that they did not have available to them at the time. Are we getting farther away from knowing what God's Word originally said? No, I don't think so. I think we're getting closer and closer and closer. Because not only did they have something written from the 12th century A.D. to use as their primary source text, when we start do doing documents now, we have things that go back to the 2nd century. A thousand years earlier, we now have documents available to us to use to translate than they had available to them in 1611. But here's what's amazing. It lines up. There's no doctrinal changes. There are no uh, structural things about the teaching of Scripture that you look at and say, that's false, that doesn't say that, they didn't have that back then. It's all the same. 
what we're finding is that we're able to reproduce because of the embarrassment of riches that we have of scriptural text that we can get closer and closer and closer to checking what was originally given to us. And it's phenomenal. So the King James and all modern translations of the Bible are using ancient texts that are helping us get closer and closer to the originals. Um, But we have all this incredible source material. The reason that modern translations have changed over 200 verses since the original King James Version was published is because we have simply better and more source material than they had. Now, does that make the King James Version of the Bible a bad translation of the Bible? No, not at all. It's still a very good translation of the Bible. And the newer versions of the King James Bible use the newer wealth of information they have available to them to translate from Greek to Hebrew. The New King James, all these different things. If you, look not, if you go back to the 1611 King James Version and you look at a 2008 copy of the King James Version, you're going to see those same differences that you would see in the NIV and the NASV because they've got older manuscripts to use to go back and get better and better and better source material. And so here's the last question that we're going to kind of pose for today. Because when we talk about the New International Version and the King James Version and the New American Standard Version, man, what type of Bible should I use? Um, And I apologize. I kind of know and understand that we're not really doing a message today where I'm saying open up your Bibles and let's look at the Gospel of Matthew and we're kind of walking through some things. And if that disappoints you, uh, I apologize. What I'm trying to do is lay some real groundwork today. Typically, if you are guests of ours today, typically if you came to one of our worship services, we teach through passages and we really try to look at things and dig into exactly what God's Word says. Uh, Today, to help us lay some groundwork for where this series is going, uh, I'm being a little bit more off of Scripture and more into historical text and historical accuracy of some things. But when you start thinking about what type of Bible should you use, there are a lot of Bibles that are available to you. I don't know if you know that or not. If you go to Lifeway, and just walk into a Bible bookstore and just kind of look at the Bible section, you'd be like overwhelmed at how many Bibles there are to choose from. It's crazy, right? There's all these different translations, NIV, NASV, ESV, uh, new NIV. You know, it's like all these kind of things, the NIV revised version. So you've just got all these crazy different translations. Let me give you three things to help you. And if you see your outline there, uh, you've got something on the very bottom of your outline that kind of looks like a timeline, or you should. I have the wrong. That's not even the right one. Okay, so um, I was going to show you, but I don't have it. Um, but if you look on the bottom, there's a timeline. Three blanks. Here's the first uh, first kind of blank. About Bible versions, is it possible? It's possible to divide translations into three kinds. The first kind is this, word-for-word translations. So the first blank on that little timeline there should be word-for-word. And when you see this word-for-word, these translations go from the original Greek and Hebrew directly into the daughter language, English being the daughter language, okay? Uh, And so what they try to do in the daughter language is preserve as much as possible the same word order, even if it results in being somewhat awkward in style in the second language. Uh, And so you might get some things that are difficult to read. If you take a look at what's known as the interlinear Bible, they try to do exactly what Greek and Hebrew says. And when you read it, it is jacked up sometimes. I mean, you're kind of like, that doesn't even make sense. Who wrote that? Was somebody like doing drugs when they interpreted it? No, but it's exact. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense because the translation back and forth isn't exact. Uh, the, the types of Bible that you would find here would be the interlinear, the New American Standard, the English Standard, the King James Version, and the New King James Version. Those are word-for-word translations from Greek and Hebrew to English. Uh, and so those are, are more of those. The second type of, uh, of Bible translation you could use is what's known as a thought-for-thought thought or phrase-for-phrase. Phrase. 
And so when you think about these, this type of translation translates the word in Greek or Hebrew to the daughter language, but it changes the word order and the phrases in order to better match the style of the writing in its second language. So really what they're trying to do is take a look at what does the Greek and Hebrew communicate and how do we say that exact same phrase in our English language so that it makes sense to English readers? Or if they're interpreting into Italian or Spanish or whatever, how do we interpret this so it makes sense to people reading in Russian who wouldn't get Hebrew, right? So these phrase-for-phrase phrase translations will take a, a phrase at a time and say, now, how do, what, is, what they're communicating in Hebrew and Greek, how do we put that in English? And how do we say it in a way that makes sense to our, our audience, all right? Um, and then the, the several versions that follow this pattern, um, the RSV, the NRSV, the NAB, the NIV, the NIRV, the NJB, REB, CEV, NLT, GW. I don't even know what some of these are. I was sitting in my office the other day going to GW. Was that George Washington's translation? I don't even know, like, where some of these things come from, but there's hundreds of them. And so, um, but these take the original Greek and Hebrew and try to put them in phrases, and they might change the word order so it makes sense. By the way, the word order in the Greek and the Hebrew, or the Greek specifically, doesn't always even matter. Um, and if you saw a video that I showed in my J-term class a couple of weeks ago, this is just kind of a highlight from that. But you can have the, the sentence structure in Greek that says, Jesus loves Paul. But you can arrange those words in any way, and the sentence structure still makes sense and says the same thing. Jesus loves Paul. Jesus Paul loves. Loves Jesus Paul. Paul Jesus loves. Paul loves Jesus. Jesus loves. Any way you put it, it still means the same thing. So when we translate it, you get these variants, and again, when you go back to these copies of copies of copies, one person might write, Jesus loves Paul. Another person might write, Paul loves Jesus. And so we would have to go, that's a variant. That's a change. It's not the same. Somebody else might write, loves Jesus Paul. That's a variant. That's a change. And then we've got three variants and three copies. It's changing. No, it's not. It says the exact same thing. But what textual critics who are against Scripture will like to tell us is, the Bible's changed. It's full of all these errors. No, it's not. We just have to count the fact that this change took place. Textual variants like that, by the way, there are more textual variants than there are words in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that or not. There are more changes that we kind of copied or seen in the copies than there are words in the New Testament. And for some people, they might go, that kind of freaks me out. There's more errors than there are words. I don't know. Remember, again, we have so much source material that every time we see Jesus loves Paul, Paul loves Jesus, loves Jesus Paul, that's three in one three-word sentence structure. And if we have 5,800 copies, there could be 100 variants out of a three-word sentence, right? So it's not this overwhelming problem that a lot of people would try to have you believe. There are all these changes and errors and problems in the Bible. No, there's not. And so here's the last one. The last one on your outline there, the English Bible translation, is a paraphrase. And so this just simply means that it's a translation. It's not really a translation. It's an interpretation. Uh, paraphrased versions of the Bible fall somewhere between a translation and a commentary. Uh, these are things like the Living Bible uh, or the Message Bible. Uh, these are paraphrases. Uh, and so when you see this, what I would say is that these are not necessarily, they don't, they've kind of gotten a bad rap in our society in some cases, but they, they have their place. Uh, I love to use these types of things for um, just my devotional time. And so you can see here, I've got the message Bible right here that Eugene uh, Peterson wrote and, and done. And it's beautiful. It's not an English, uh, Greek, to, Greek and Hebrew to English translation. It's a paraphrase. 
But it's beautiful. It helps you understand in our English context, what are some things, how might this be understood or said in our English language today in the 21st century? Uh, when I study, and if you're asking this question, okay, what kind of version of the Bible should I use? Uh, I would say that you almost can't go wrong whether it's word for word or phrase for phrase. You need to find something that fits for you and helps you understand Scripture better and interact with Scripture well. Uh, and so you can see I've got a lot of different kinds of Bibles up here. I've got uh, NASV. I've got NIV. I've got a New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version. Uh, I've got the Message. I've got a uh, Chronological Life Application Study Bible that's actually in the New Living Translation. And then I've got one that's a parallel Bible that has four different versions of Scripture all beside each other. And so uh, I use all of these when I study. And I'll take a look at all these different kinds of what does it say in this language, what does it say in this version, what does it say in this version. But then when I teach, I primarily teach and use the New International Version of the Bible. Why do I do that? Well, I spent 15 years in student ministry before becoming the pastor here. And if you, again, go to Lifeway and look in the Bible section and you want to find a good study Bible for a teenager, there are about 7,000 NIV study Bibles in different versions and colors and formats, and any student, teenager, or child can get a good study Bible in the NIV. There's not as many in the KJV and in the uh, NASB and the ESB. There's just not. So I started teaching out of the NIV because most of my students use the NIV. Now, I could easily switch to an ESV or an NASB if I was going to go to a word-for-word translation, but I like how the NIV writes. It says things in a way that's easy to communicate and expresses... um, things in our modern language in a a very easy way. And so that's kind of what I like. Um, For you, you can make that decision. What do you like? Do you want something that's kind of more word for word, more of a paraphrase? What what do you like? Uh, The the thought for thought? um, What fits where you are? But I would say you can't really go wrong with any of them. Um, they're, They're taken as best they can from the original Greek and Hebrew with the copies of the manuscripts that we have dating back to the second century that are within a hundred years of Christ living and walking on this earth. And the gospel writers and the epistles that we have written were so close to the originals through these copies, especially when you compare some of the things like Tacitus and Gaius and Josephus that are eight and nine hundred years after the original. We're so close to the originals. And so here's what I would say to wrap things up this morning. Um, I would say this. You can trust what you have in your hands is God's Word. You can trust it. That you can take it as the authority in your life. He's preserved for us a way to know Him, to follow Him, and to show Him to the world through His Word. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign and supreme. And I believe that supernaturally He has helped preserve His Word throughout the ages, throughout the generations, throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, so that we can trust that we have His Word to us to govern our lives and to help us know how to follow him better. And so, today, um, if you are interested in doing a little bit more of your own detailed research, I've got two books that I would uh, highly um, recommend to you. This one called Truth Matters. Uh, this is written by a guy named uh, Andreas Kostenberger. I don't think he's English uh, or American, actually. Um, Daryl Bach and Josh Chatrall. Uh, Truth Matters. Great book. Teenagers and students. This one would be a phenomenal book for you. College students. Get a hold of this one. I think if you graduated this year, you got a copy of this. Is this the one you guys got as you graduated? Read it before you go to college. It will help you immensely. Um, The second one is called Dethroning Jesus. Uh, This is written by Daryl Bach and Daniel Wallace. These are two guys I mentioned earlier in my my message. Um, Daryl Bach and Daniel Wallace are two of the foremost textual critics in the world today. 
Um, they have put their eyes on some documents that they are the only people in the world who have seen it. Uh, papri and, and different things like that. That They study this stuff. They know it. Like, it's incredible. Uh, they are both professors at Dallas Theological Seminary and are world-renowned as textual critics from a biblical standpoint. And so uh, great, great material there. All right? Um, Kind of a weird way to end the service today. There's no great like, hey, wasn't that spiritual and amazing? And so now let's pray and have this moving moment. So we're just going to close in prayer. And uh, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And they're going to lead us in uh, in one more song. And uh, and then we're going to be dismissed for the day. But um, I hope that you've gotten something out of this that helps encourage you in your faith. You guys can come on up. Uh, I hope this helps encourage you in your faith. That you don't have to go to Scripture and think, man, do I have something that's true, that's reliable? Uh, the Bible is true. It's reliable. It's been preserved for us by God. And you can trust that what it says is what God intended for us to see and know and hear about him so that it guides and and governs our lives. All right? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And uh, it is just an honor for me to be able to present this information today to your church. And I pray that it will be encouraging to some. I know that there may be uh, questions that this sparks in people. And I pray that as they um, have questions of their own or if there are things that they may even disagree with, Uh, that they would search out truth for themselves and they would dig in, not just to be content uh, to, to have their own opinions about things, but to go and look for the truth. Paul was impressed by the Bereans because he said about them that uh, they didn't just listen to what he said and accept it. They listened to what he said and then they went and studied God's word to make sure it held true to the gospel and to the, to the word of God. So I pray that we would be diligent to do that as well. That we wouldn't just hear things and accept it as gospel truth because I say it or one of our elders says it or one of our leaders in the church says it. But God, that we would go and measure what we know and what we believe and what we hear against the authoritative word of God. And let your truth and your word guide us. And so, Father, we ask that you would allow us to be honest in our search and our approach of you. And that we would, uh, that we would listen closely to your word and your truth. God, I ask these things in Jesus' name.